0: Welcome to the Denver United Sermon of the Week. We hope you're encouraged by this timely message from God's Word. All right, good morning, everybody. This is my favorite time of the church year, coming into the holiday season, Thanksgiving. Um, We had our friends giving with our small group last night, which was, to me, uh, uh, an inaugural event for this season. This is, as you heard, one of our biggest weeks of the year, the potluck. The family feast, worship night, um, outreach event uh, that is our capstone event every year on Saturday, legacy offering Sunday morning. You know, the only thing I want to add is that we have one rule here at Denver United that's very serious when it comes to potlucks, uh, and this is is drawn from the original text. Um, Jesus, too, um, felt that there was no place for tuna at church potlucks, it's not funny, it is wrong. It is, it, it, tuna, like if you're, that's not true. I, actually, I take that back. If you like are going to carve up a yellow fin and bring a tuna steak, that is of the Lord. But the, 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 the processed shelf stable product, it's like an evidence of the fall. The devil has no creative power. He can only take what good thing God creates and distort it, twist it, make it smell like cat food. It's really, really gross and we'll have none of it. So if you bring a tuna casserole, y- you're not welcome. Otherwise, the Lord, he, he, I think the Holy Spirit, like, he's like, I'm good, guys. <laughs> you guys got this. So no tuna, please. It's, it's a thing for me. I mean, I'm not even, like, it's not a joke, but I'm glad that it's amusing for you. It's, uh, everyone's got their thing. I Gag reflex. Can't do tuna. Um, and nobody likes the potluck with the tuna surprise. So let's not do it. Um, Hey, Legacy Offering, just give you a quick uh, insight, if you're new around here, why we do that, what it is. It's rooted in the scripture in 2 Corinthians 9 that says that when we trust God with our lives, when we surrender to Him and His Lordship, that... He enriches us in every way so that we can be generous on every occasion. That's part of what it means to be a church, part of why we come together as a family rather than just worshiping God as Lone Rangers individually, Uh, because there is a synergy when we pull our resources. The church is likened to a storehouse in scripture And the idea of the Legacy Offering is to create a storehouse so that we are armed and ready with the opportunity to be generous on every occasion. Last week, Pastor Neil talked about some of the global initiatives or responses that we had the opportunity to be a part of this year, the uh, humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan, the natural disasters uh, in Haiti and other places, real-time uh, response with thousands of dollars to those who are on the front line, trusted partners who have the opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus outstretched in a time of, of great crisis and need. And that doesn't happen because we wish for it to. That happens because we're intentional out of the abundance, the surplus, the overflow to uh, endow us our church family with this resource trove That's how the food pantry came about. In 2019, the church was at the top of, of our wave. Everything was booming, and we had this incredible outpouring of generosity at the Legacy Offering, this time two years ago. Little did any of us know, three months later, the world would get flipped upside down. Lots of people would be out of work. We would have refugees moving to this city as we do every year. It's a gateway city for refugees. But just as they land, the carpet would get pulled out from under them. We had the opportunity, because of your intentional generosity, your sacrificial worship giving, to come alongside dozens of families whom we're still serving and new ones after them who come to America fleeing whatever circumstance of hardship only to go out of the frying pan and into the fire. We've had the opportunity to show the love of Jesus in practical ways, coming alongside families Uh, as they get traction in in our city. Jesus made it clear, and Scripture does from beginning to end, God's heart for the alien, the stranger, the foreigner, and uh, all of us are strangers and outcasts in different settings and ways. You've made it possible for us to be the love of Jesus to people in our city whom God loves, who have come here in such unimaginably hard circumstances as the last couple of years uh, have caused. And so that's just another example of how your legacy giving has enabled us to collectively as a church family to be generous on every occasion. This is an offering, it's not the tithe, it's not a function of obedience, it's a matter of generosity. An offering is uh, over and above our normal giving and out of the abundance with which God has blessed us. Some of us have the opportunity to give just a little and let's give a little. Scripture says we should give without compulsion, arm twisting, hand wringing, guilt, pressure, anything like that. Some of us have been blessed exceedingly this year and we have the opportunity out of our abundance to give a lot. Let's do that as the Lord puts it on our heart. Take this week with me and pray about that. I love kicking off the holiday season with legacy. We do it at this time of year on purpose because the time of our year as Americans and Westerners that is marked by consumer indulgence and and maxing out the credit cards, we begin instead not by receiving or looking to that, but by giving. Jesus made clear it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's a great way to frame and bound our focus of Advent, and uh, that happens next week. So look forward to that together. Would you pray with me this week about how God might have you participate? Sound good? Any questions about the legacy offering, what we do with it, how we steward it, how our trustees provide visibility in that, in that process, how much we, we set aside to be ready when, when disaster strikes that we can't foresee, how much we commit into what uh, up front. We'd love to talk with you about that. Our aim in this and in every matter financially is to be uh, a responsible and transparent storehouse for you uh, as you give your worship dollars to God and entrust them to our stewardship. So please do feel free to reach out to me, one of our trustees or one of our staff. We'd love to talk about that and answer any questions you may have. Good? You with me? All right, let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thank you that Jesus, your truth done your way leads to life abundant. We receive it now and give you our focused attention. This is our worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. More than 10 years ago now, it was actually 11 years and a little more, the sports world had endless entertainment from what came to be known simply as The Decision. Any sports fans or culture enthusiasts remember The Decision? This was when LeBron James, global icon, made a change of team. You know, the first athlete ever to make a decision and so it needed to be capitalized and given the moniker The Decision and put on in real time on ESPN as a special. Well, of course, it got mocked and derided quite a lot. ESPN took a ton of negative publicity for it. And LeBron James turned into a bad guy if he were like in the WWE for a few years. Um, what happened there that transcended sports and made that such a culture phenomenon? Well, you had the kid from Akron, right? A- American hero who raised by a single mom, makes good, works hard, ends up playing impossibly unlikely for his hometown team, the Cleveland Cavaliers, and then plays out his contract honorably. Now he's a free agent. He's allowed by the rules to choose what team he wants to play for. Of course, every team in the world wants him to play for them. All of the other 29 teams in the NBA are making him offers. They all can only offer up to this same amount. So they're offering the same amount of money. So now it's purely subjective factors. It's not who can give him the most money. Uh, It's where he wants to go totally happy for him, as is every onlooker. It's his prerogative, unless, of course, you live in Cleveland, in which case you guilt and shame and do what local sports fans do, especially in small markets when people don't want to play for your team and they want to play for the dumb Lakers instead. So you, you do that. They were doing that, but all the other sports fans in the country were like, ah, his prerogative. But the vaudeville show that arose out of his decision and the fact that all self-serious men in suits sat around with this 26-year-old kid, for an hour-long ESPN special for him to announce what team he wanted to play for, it kind of turned America's stomachs, and the public sort of turned against him. What was it that we objected to? Was it that a 26-year-old phenom would get paid millions and millions of dollars to play a sport? I think we've long since made our peace with that. Was it that somebody would want to move away from Cleveland? Was it that somebody would want to go to Miami? I mean, was it that a dude would want to play with his friends? None of those things moved the needle. It was the fact that there was this this gravity, this self-aggrandizing gravity around his decision. Do you remember this phrase, this unfortunate phrase? It was, obviously, he was had this language crafted for him but he felt responsible to steward his global icon and so where could he go to best nurture his brand and i think that made the average american even like the sports fan go like Ugh! Your global icon, you know, and, and his unfortunate wording for the announcement was when it, you know, 50 minutes into the special, I'm going to take my talents to South Beach and eye rolls around the world. And so LeBron James literally switched from the lovable kid from Akron, like Captain America, to the villain. Like he wore a black headband. He was surly and mean and, and teams would, would target him and fans would boo him. It was a whole thing for quite a while that he had to work through. Our title this morning, "A man of no Reputation." Who can find a man of no reputation? We're in a series called "The Jesus Way, operating under an, a, a governing premise of the Jesus Way wedded to the Jesus truth brings about the Jesus life Jesus said famously I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father but by me it seems that as western 21st century followers of Jesus were disproportionately familiar with the Jesus truth but less so with his way and so by default what we end up doing is taking the Jesus truth very rightly and living it out the American way or whatever our culture teaches us is the way, and we get a different sort of life than the Jesus life. We're looking at the stories of the Gospels, not so much Jesus's teachings, but his comings and goings, his interactions, and reading between the lines, doing expository study, X ex out of, posit, what's posited or held out by the text, and drawing out these lessons woven into the narratives of Jesus' life, piecing them together like a mosaic picture of tiles and trying to discover some of Jesus' ways. We're in John chapter 6 this morning. In verse 1, the Bible teaches, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he was performing. He had performed by healing the sick. Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. And when he looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where will we buy bread for all these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. We're looking at the Gospel of John over against the three other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, often referred to as the Synoptic Gospels because their objective is It seems is to provide more of a linear synopsis of Jesus' life. John is more like color commentary. He gives us insights on this familiar, oft-told story, like Jesus knew what he was going to do, and he was doing it to test them. John's presented as the disciple that Jesus loved, the one who perhaps uh, was closest to Jesus, and so it would follow that he would have a little more insight into Jesus' soul, his thinking, his ways. So it's a good place to look. For this study, as we continue through it, a couple of observations of the text. First, Jesus' popularity is swelling. Bible scholars talk about the first of the three years of Jesus' public ministry as his year of obscurity, and then the second as the year of popularity, followed, of course, by the third, which was the year of opposition. Jesus had come out of obscurity, and people now had caught on. They knew what was going on with this guy, and everywhere he went was a crowd. So he was often getting into boats and going across the lake and getting up early and going up on the side of a mountain all in order to have some boundaries like Pastor Daniel talked about to start this series and to get alone and keep from losing his mind. Jesus' popularity is swelling. A great crowd of people, the text tells us, followed him. And so he crossed to the far shore. Jesus here is looking for privacy as we see him often do. He went up on a mountainside again and sat down with his disciples. It would seem he's looking for a time to have some training an impartation with his inner circle. Makes sense, certainly. He's allowed to do that. So he's trying to get away from the crowd, looking for privacy. But when the crowd persists, Jesus, as he does, responds with compassion. Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat, rather than annoyance or like exasperation or sighs? And so in verse 12, you know the story. Jesus is presented with a young boy who has a little bit of bread and fish. He multiplies it. Everybody eats as much as they want. And when they'd all had enough to eat, verse 12, he said to his disciples, "'Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted.'" So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed... They began to say, surely this is the prophet. Not this is a prophet. That was so last year. This is the prophet, capital P, the one who we've been taught to expect, the one our grandparents would hold vigil waiting for, the one Israel has been looking to for hundreds of years. Surely this is the guy. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain. By himself. A couple of other observations. First, what you see in this passage is that Jesus very intentionally, I would think, returns to the subject matter of the first temptation. Do you remember at the beginning of this series we looked at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry? He comes out of obscurity, he's baptized, the heavens open, the dove descends, the Father's voice breaks through. Time and space, and says, This is my son. And just when it would seem Jesus has a ramp to jump off of, he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and then is tempted by the devil. So, the first temptation we looked at at the beginning of this series, do you remember what it was? The devil said to Jesus, who was hungry after 40 days of fasting, Hey, turn these stones into bread. The temptation was to feed the masses to wow the crowd, to short-circuit the process of God's plan, and just buy, essentially, their love and loyalty. Jesus said, of course, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And yet, here we are a year or two later, Jesus doing the very thing that the devil tempted him to do, right? Right? multiplying food in order to feed the masses. But what Jesus refuses to do, by contrast to the devil's temptation, is to accept the trappings. He withdrew again to a mountain by himself. He doesn't stick around for the accolades that the devil, it would seem, tempted him to do this for in the first place. Jesus apparently had no use for upward mobility. Jesus seemed given to a path of downward mobility instead. Not only did he repeatedly refuse promotion when people offered it, he turned and walked 180 degrees the opposite direction. And it would seem he did this on purpose. A chapter later, it says after this in John 7. Jesus went around in Galilee. He didn't go to Jerusalem, to Judea, where all the people were. He stayed in the backwater regions. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles, verse 2, was near, Jesus' brothers came to him and said, hey, leave Galilee, where there's no people, kind of out in the rural area. Go to Judea so your disciples there can see the works that you do. The Festival of Tabernacles is the time of the year that, or one of the times of the year, that the people from all over the Jewish diaspora would come together in Jerusalem and celebrate. So he's like, hey, capitalize on that. Be strategic. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, why not show yourself to the world? Let them see it. For even his own brothers did not believe in him, they didn't grasp what he was about. And why he was doing it the way he was. Therefore, Jesus told them simply, My time is not yet here. In a world driven by our search for significance, Jesus seemed to opt at every turn for insignificance instead. It's it's confounding and it's at times frustrating. What's up with that? This wasn't just this once. This was a pattern. Back in Matthew chapter 8, at the beginning, in the obscurity, the leper said, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him, said, I am willing. Be clean. The man was healed. And Jesus said to him, don't tell anyone about this. Matthew 9, he touched the eyes of the blind men. It said, because of your faith, it'll happen. Their eyes were open and they could see. And then Jesus sternly warned them, don't tell anyone about this. Why ever not? Matthew 17, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. He's transfigured. He glows so bright they can't look at him. Moses and Elijah come and hang out with them. Heaven parts again. God's audible voice. This is my son. The disciples are like, on the way down from the mountain, Jesus says, don't tell anyone what you have seen. It would seem if you are the son of God, the creator and author of life, the ultimate revelation of the divine to humankind, and you've got three years of public life, you would be wanting to build your brand quick, get as much of an audience As possible. And yet Jesus seemed to go the opposite direction, to choose insignificance, to plot a course of downward mobility. Scholars call this phenomenon the messianic secret. He seemed inexplicably to want to keep the fact that he is the Messiah under wraps. Not only did he refuse to self-promote, but he constantly refused to let others promote him. He told them, don't tell anyone. Keep it to yourself. Jesus squashed significance as a motivator. And this stands in stark contrast of the way of culture, doesn't it? Yesterday, my son was explaining to me anew because I think the first two or three times my kids have told me this, I've just refused to assimilate this as reality, that there is a guy, apparently millions of them, but there's one guy in particular who is making hundreds of millions of dollars, U.S. currency, by being a social media influencer. He films himself doing funny, frivolous things, posts it on YouTube, promotes the heck out of it, gets a million people to like it and love it and want more of it. It's kind of what that wanted, isn't it? To forward and retweet or whatever, and then advertise. So I'm like, how did he make hundreds of millions of dollars? My son's like, advertising? Advertisers pay to be on his channel, and he's making hundreds of millions of dollars as a social media or social influencer, as they call them. You don't say media anymore. You know you're old and out if you say social media. It's just social. He's a social... Is that wrong? Are you looking at me thinking, okay, I am. I'm totally out of touch. This is everything that our culture models, teaches, and rewards from birth. I I say this with no finger wagging to you. It's more of just acknowledging a reality, the reality into which we were born and which we have been, had nurtured from birth. It's like the, you know, the satirist that wrote, um, someone said to a goldfish, how's the water? And the goldfish says, what the heck's water? That's all he's ever known. This is all we've ever known. Be as big a deal as you can be. Verse 14 is where we're going to zoom in in this passage. The people, after Jesus did this miraculous sign, said, surely this is the prophet who is coming into the world. Well, good. They're noticing something that it would seem God was doing. So that's a virtuous thing. And then listen, Jesus, verse 15, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force withdrew again to a mountain by himself now this is one of those passages i've read a lot of times over the years and the re, the astonishing reality of it never really hit me till i was looking at these texts through the glasses of the jesus way who gets made king by force like what does that even mean they were going to be like, hey, man, we want you to be our king. No, no, I'm good. No, no, we really need you to be king. No, thanks. No, stick him up, buster. You're going to be king, Mike, whether you like it or not. They forced, they wanted to force him to be their king. How, what, how does that even happen? Who in our culture who is told, hey, we want to promote you. We want to give you more money. We want to put you on the cover of magazines. We want to make you rich, famous, successful, and influential. We want you to be a big deal all for the sake of the cause. No, no, I couldn't possibly. Oh no, Buster, you're gonna be corporate vice president. No, you're gonna sit in sideline seats. You're gonna fly in a private jet whether you like it or not. Nobody gets made king by force. What does that even mean? How absolutely antithetical to everything we understand to be reality. And Jesus slips away and goes up on a mountain. The world teaches us very early to climb the ladder, but call it something else. Like Jesus' response would have been noble. Oh, you know, no, 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 no. I wasn't looking for promotion. I wasn't asking to be a big deal. But obviously, you need me to. So there's, a, there's some false nobility possible in this situation. And this is the way of the world. What I want you to see, this is the nature, this is the very nature of capitalism, And by saying this, I'm not saying that I think instead we should pursue socialism or communism. Those don't seem to work very well. I, too, am a capitalist. But the whole notion of serving the customer, right? Like, my pleasure, sir. Well, you and I both know giving me another six Chick-fil-A sauces, of which four and a half are going to end up smeared over the table, and in 25 minutes you're going to have to clean up, is not your pleasure, but you're taught by a really sharp manager to say that it is your pleasure. And the reason is that that contributes to my buying more chicken nuggets, which makes your company continue to defy the trend, the downtrend of fast food and become a Fortune 500 company. Awesome, but we don't serve the customer. You know, the whole idea of the customer is always right said nobody who ever worked in customer service. You know full well that most of the time the customer is an idiot. But you say the customer is always right because you want him or her to spend more money and you to be more successful, right? So it's a weaponized selflessness. That's what our culture teaches. I remember sitting In a convocation at my prep school, I was 16 years old and one of the uh, illustrious alumni who was uh, the head of a Fortune 500 company, as a matter of fact, was speaking to us, motivating and inspiring us uh, and said, you owe it to the world to be great. And there was this nobility uh, uh, attached, this sort of propagating of of a system of attaching nobility to our ambition. The world needs you to. You probably wouldn't want to like be rich and famous and all that and run companies and countries, but the world needs you to. So we're like, oh, uh, okay, all right, I'll go and think I'm a big deal and and give everything I got to climb some ladder, right? But nobody wants to say it. It took me like more than a decade to realize how gross that is. This is the water in which we swim and we have from birth. The world's way is to self-aggrandize, and spin it as noble. It's the way of the world. Tell yourself you're doing something noble, right? It's like a a, a giant galactic emperor's new clothes situation where everybody knows it's not your pleasure, particularly. But we all participate in this system together because we all benefit from it. Nobody wants to say, the emperor's naked, because we're all getting something out of it, so we prop it, it up and we tell one another, our noble spin is believable. That's the world's way—self-aggrandize and spin it as noble. But the Jesus way flies in the face of that, doesn't it? The Jesus way is lay down the pursuit of personal significance, lay it down altogether, contrary to everything we've been taught from birth. I think the part of the decision that earned LeBron years of infamy was when he talked about his global icon, but in particular that he, and and this wasn't even him, this was the it would seem the ESP and execs and the people asking the questions, he was doing the thing. And um, th- the way that the interview proceeded was essentially to suggest that this whole thing was important and necessary, this thing being, s- this decision being such a big hoo-ha because, uh, uh, because of care for the game. They, the, game needed, the game needed them to make such a big deal out of this decision. He had a responsibility after all to everyone else. And I think that just rang hollow with the American public. Worldly Christianity is no stranger to this phenomenon. Let's not paint ourselves virtuous, stand aloof and do that religious thing that we sometimes do, wagging a finger at the world. Oh, we do it too. We ministry leaders too often present false extremes as the two options. Either, you know, chase after uh, celebrities and try to get a selfie with yourself and Justin Bieber for Jesus, of course. The kingdom gets advanced if, if I surrender to needful celebrity. If I'm a rock star pastor, Jesus gets famous. I'll just got to take this picture with Biebs. It's like every pastor wants that. Or we swing that pendulum all the other way and, and we teach that, you know, in the event of rapture, this car will be unmanned. We teach this flimsy escapism that abdicates our responsibility for influence in the world to establish Jesus' kingdom. And we teach this flimsy phony kind of skate by Christianity that mistakes the fact that Jesus died for us to have eternal life for the notion that this world and our time don't matter neither of this of these honors Jesus He had a way of holding both somehow and keeping his heart pure in the process. You know the famous kenosis passage we talk about from time to time? It's probably the most important for our Christology, our understanding of who Jesus actually is and what he did. It's Philippians chapter two. Consider Jesus who being in very nature God didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself. And and out of that, we establish this very nuanced doctrine that we try to get our minds around of how Jesus was fully God and fully man. Well, in some of the more uh, traditional translations, this is presented in a way that adds fascinating illumination to our subject today. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who made himself, listen, who made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Theologian and seminary professor Scott Roden made this fascinating observation. The verse does not say that Jesus became a man of bad reputation or even of questionable reputation, but simply of no reputation. That is, reputation, image, prestige, prominence, power, and other trappings of leadership, they were not only devalued by Jesus, they were purposefully dismissed. Jesus became such a purposeful, intentional man. He became that guy, not by default or accident, but by intention and design. And it was only in this form that he could serve, love, give, teach, and lead. It says he made himself a man of no reputation. There are plenty of us that will go through our lives without much of a public persona, but Jesus, he came into the world as the culmination of millennia, of God's cosmic plan eternally in motion, he carefully chose the way that he would live. And as such, he chose to make himself a man of no reputation. So does this mean Jesus didn't accomplish anything? He didn't achieve? Of course not. Jesus changed the world Jesus wielded more influence than any person in human history. And how do we square this with our own value for influence? You know, using the world's industry and opportunity for kingdom advance. Ephesians 1 says that Jesus is manifest, made complete in us, his body, the church, And he fills through us all things everywhere with himself. That is to say, we recognize that what happens in here isn't the substance of church, and this isn't the big deal. It's what happens out there in all your lanes of enterprise, all your spheres of influence, all the places that Jesus has given you to go and be, and the things he's given you to do and achieve. That's how the kingdom comes, us being the action agent for Jesus making all things new. So how do we square that with this confounding way of our Lord? Jesus did feed the masses, and he did heal the blind men, and he did save the world. He just didn't find his significance in these accomplishments. Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, watch out for the hypocrites that want the attention. He said, don't sound a trumpet when you give to the poor to get their attention and have them go, ooh, look at you, you're the gold standard for religion or for righteousness. He said, instead... Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Jesus, in the famous Jesus way, says it, leaves it there, leaves the steak rare, and lets us for the next 2,000 years chew on that saying. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Influence, achieve, accomplish, be everything that God has asked you to be, it seems he would say. Don't dumb yourself down or check yourself out in the flimsy Um, service of the rapture coming or anything else. That doesn't honor God, but don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't find your significance in those accomplishments. That seems to be what Jesus was getting after. He said in Matthew 16, simply, if anyone would come after me, if you wanna be my follower, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And that spiritual practice of self-denial that Jesus requires of us, that he calls us to, I think substantially in practical daily living is the practice of detaching our service to God from our search for significance. Detaching our service to God from our search for significance You know, our souls are wired to seek significance. They recognize instinctively that we're more than this earthen stuff. And that's right, for God has placed eternity in the hearts of humankind. But the danger is when that search, that quest for what are we here for, gets entangled with our service to God, with the work that we do. The resources that we steward, the people that we lead, or anything else like that. There's so many ways that I think if we're honest, we do this without even knowing it. We're discipled in it. Our churches model it. This is why two or three years ago, I stopped doing social media, cold turkey. I didn't, out of any sense of nobility or to set an example for you, I, did, I stopped because I found that I would, you know, I like the ideal of it, My wife tells me, I post on Instagram because I wanna create a, a, a chronicle of our family's good times with friends and together. And I think that's beautiful. It's just that when I post something, I would find that like my inner seventh grader would constantly go back to that picture looking at how many people liked it. And then I would feel disappointed if fewer people liked it than like the last one. So I'd think, what do I need to do to make them like it more? And then, but I would never say these things out loud. I, even saying it now makes me feel incredibly childish, but it's true. And I got sucked into it and I didn't like that. So finally I was like, ah. And I read where Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And so I cut off Facebook and I'm not looking for a medal for it. I'm wondering, what is that for you? What is it that makes separating our service to God from our search for significance difficult? What would it look like for the Holy Spirit to lead us to disentangle those two things? Surrender that search to God who is the fulfillment of a thousand searches for significance and then do our work with our left hand not knowing what our right hand is doing. Maybe it's professional ambition. Maybe it's academic achievement. Maybe it's accumulation of wealth or maintenance and improvement of your appearance. Or maybe it's popularity. What is it that beneath the surface pulls those strings and keeps? those two forces entangled? What is the thing like social media was for me that we don't really say in good society because it's embarrassing. We don't want to acknowledge about ourselves. What if we just were the ones to say, the emperor's not wearing any clothes. This is why I strive so hard. Looking for love in all the wrong places. Trying to fill my bucket with something that can't fill it. Would you stand with me? Just close your eyes if you would and hear this. In Psalm 46, the Word of God speaks in the first person. God says, Cease striving that I am God I will be exalted among the nations I will be praised in the earth daughter son cease striving Significance to a soul that is already infinitely significant. I'm your Father and your Creator, and I made you to matter. I've written your name on the palms of my hands. You are ever in front of me. The chains that weigh you down, the problems that beset you, they're always on my heart. You are glorious and eternal. You are the saints in the land, the glorious ones in whom is all your Father's delight. You're never going to find anything that makes you more significant than you are right now. Father, I pray this blessing over my friends, over my family, over myself. Lord, would you help us to live confident in who you say we are? Would you help us to run to you with all of our thirst for mattering, all of our search for significance? You said you will seek me and you'll find me. Lord, would you let us find you? Would you refresh my friends this day, this week with a certainty of who they are, how much you value them, the good plans you have for them? Lord, would you help us to cease striving? Would you help us to begin to untangle those forces? To lay down that search for significance at the foot of the cross. To do what you've given us to do, all you've entrusted us to do with all of our hearts as though we're doing it for you to the maximum of our potential, to the very best of our ability. Lord, would you increase and multiply my friend's influence and would you let our left hand not know what our right hand is doing. Lord, let your kingdom come in us and through us and your will be done. Love you guys so much. Thanks for coming to Worship God with us today. Don't forget, this week is a big week at Denver United as the holiday season begins. Go online, it'll take you 20 seconds. Sign up for Saturday's Thanksgiving outreach. Sunday night, our potluck dinner and worship night to kick off the Thanksgiving and holiday season. And then next Sunday, be praying with me about the legacy offering and our creating a storehouse so that we can bless a lot of people next year. Sound good? Have an amazing week. Enjoy the beautiful day. We'll see you next Sunday we hope you've been encouraged this week for more information or to submit a prayer request go to denverunited.com